0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 36. Welcome to part two of the Andrew Mewing story, and wow, what a response to part one. In terms of listens and downloads in its first week, it has well and truly surpassed any of the previous 34 episodes. I can't be certain why it's been so popular. Perhaps it was the timing during the first week of the Olympics as we slowly came to the realization that our swimmers were not going to bring home the bags of gold that we and they had hoped. Perhaps Andrew's story added some balance, a dash of reality to the exaggerated and artificial media coverage we're so often treated to. Or perhaps the popularity of part one of the Andrew Mewing story is simply because he's such a likeable character, so switched on, honest and articulate, with an incredible story to tell. Well, As I said at the end of that show, that was only half the story. The rest is yet to come. In this episode, Andrew talks us through his second Olympic trials for Beijing in 2008. After turning up to the Athens trials in 2004 as a relative newcomer to elite swimming with very low expectations as the hunter, as he described it, 2008 was a very different story. Andrew was a real chance of going to the Games this time. More than a real chance. You might even say it was expected. But as we already know, it didn't turn out the way he hoped. And again, Andrew does an incredible job of taking us back to that time to relive it with him through his eyes. He tells us about the events that led up to that awful period in his time as a swimmer when he found himself in court, facing off against the organisation that had been such an important part of his life. We hear how he dealt with that period, the fallout, how he managed to move past it and get on with his life. And to finish our conversation, we talk about Andrew Mewing, the lawyer. Having incredibly completed two degrees during his swimming career, Andrew wasted no time in making the transition from speedos to suit. I hope you enjoy part two of my conversation with Andrew Mewing. So that period between Athens and the Beijing Olympics you had a lot going on. One of the things that you did was for the first time in your life you swam somewhere else other yeah. than at Yeronga Park. You went down to the Gold Coast to live and train with Grant Hackett. That must have been a difficult decision to leave your longtime coach, but what were the benefits of that decision? What was that experience like?
1: Yeah, that was a that was a horrendous experience actually leaving really? Rick. The decision, making the decision to do it was a horrendous experience because I was and I am really close with Rick. He's a, I would count him as one of my closest friends, actually, and a fam- family friend. But at the time, there were a few different factors at play, and one of which was that I'd been offered a job on the Gold Coast in a law firm. Right. And I was friends with Grant and had been for a while, and he was really keen to have a new training partner. So there were a few sort of stars that aligned there where Grant said, well, come down and train with me and you know, live with me. He also actually helped me get that job on the Gold Coast, I should add, with uh, McInnes Wilson Lawyers, which is where I ended up working later on in my career as well. So there were career reasons behind that decision. But at the same time, I felt you know bitterly disappointed for Rick at the time because he'd put all this effort into me. And just as I was about to crack it, crack the team, I, I was moving on. So it was a pretty tough experience. I know it wounded Rick and you know, it was upsetting for me too but I felt it was, I had to do it for my career. I also was excited by the opportunity of training with Grant and training with Dennis Cottrell. I mean, I did that for about 18 months and then I...
0: Was that directly before the 2008 trials?
1: No, it wasn't. It was in 2005, two thousand and five, 2006. So I was. I moved down to the Gold Coast in late 2004 and after the Commonwealth Games in 2006, I moved back to Brisbane. So I got I had that good window there of, tra- of having that experience of training with Dennis, who's a radically different coach, in style to Rick and living, training, eating, everything with, uh, with Grant in what was probably his highlight year because um, that year he got International Swimmer of the Year. He won multiple gold medals at the World Championships and he broke the world record in the 800 freestyle. So it was an amazing experience really to sort of go through that and, and see the big man in action. He's a bit of a machine. He just trains like an absolute weapon. So it was yeah, it was, it was an experience I don't regret at all. It was really interesting.
0: What surprised you about seeing Grant Hackett training close up? You'd obviously known him quite well. You'd seen him compete a lot. But was there anything about the way he trained and the way his squad, because Dennis Cottrell has a squad of stars mm. down on the Gold Coast. What did you notice that was different to where you'd come from?
1: Well, I guess with Rick... By the time I'd sort of not cracked the big time, but, you know, was sort of on the cusp of the Australian team. For a long time there, I had been the leader of the squad by then. So I was, to an extent, sort of big fish, small pond, you know, with no disrespect to Yoronga, But I was the leader of that team and I thrived on being the leader and it made me really focused and relentless about how I trained every day. Whereas when I then went to Miami, it was a massive squad. There was no question that Grant was the big dog but there was also Kai Hurst and a number of other phenomenally talented age group athletes who were on the cusp of cracking it and every morning there were all the ironmen as well so it was it was a totally different environment and Grant was just an amazing an amazing athlete and he'd just come off the back of backing up in the 1500 freestyle he'd won that in, again in Athens he was super motivated to to really Almost step out of Thorpey's shadow, I suppose, because um, Ian had taken two thousand and five off. So, yeah, it was just a completely different environment, and I probably didn't do as well in that environment as I did with Rick, because I was just in my my nature of things was I, I really thrived on leadership responsibility, sort of being the, the big fish, being the big fish, I suppose, and um and I was anything but that with Dennis and 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 also just the nature of the training, it was quite de- distance oriented. Because it was a distance squad, and I physically struggled in that environment. But I, I really, um, I really enjoyed the experience of being down there. It was so different, and I, you know, I really respect Dennis. I think he's an amazing coach and so passionate about swimming. And it was just a fun experience.
0: You've said that throughout your career, it probably hurt you a bit that you're so much of a thinker. It's uh, probably helped you to train really well because you could apply your mind to that and think about times and. What it was that you were doing. But when it came to racing, you feel as though the, your, the thinking part of you probably got in your way to some respect. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that's a fair assessment. In training, I think there is that ability to effectively bend your, how you're performing to your will, you know, in a sense. If you're not feeling great, you can, you've got the time to take a step back and think about what it is you're not doing right on that day, what you should be focusing on to improve your performance every day. I used to really thrive on that and it used to I, I get a lot I got a lot of reward out of it where on a day by day I would try to squeeze the lemon and get everything out of it racing's completely different and in a race it's probably the the dumbest thing you can do is think <laughs> you should just let it happen I mean all the work's been done you really should just be as relaxed as possible and just just let you let yourself do what you've been training to do and there were many times when I didn't do that I I certainly would swim the race in my mind a few too many times before it was actually the occasion to do it. As a thinker, are you anchored too much in reality? Whereas, you know, I've done this swim
0: a hundred thousand times in training. These are my limitations. I know I can only go this fast. Whereas uh, someone who doesn't apply their mind so much and just goes out and let it happen in a race, are they the people that can really swim these massive PBs, break world records, do things that they've never done before by definition because they haven't overthought it?
1: I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, your intelligence or, or lack thereof or anything like that. It's it's just the actual, the skill of almost mindfulness and your ability to tone it down when you need to. And I just, at certain times in my career, just didn't have it. At other times I did, but there were some guys who consistently could, yeah, put it all out of their mind and just swim. And, um, you know, one of the examples is probably Thorpey, who, despite having being well-known as a phenomenally intelligent person, after every race, he'd say he didn't remember a single thing of his race. And if you asked him what he would focus on, he'd say, well, in a 200 freestyle, then I'm not exactly on the money here. I can't remember exactly. He used to say uh, in the first 50, he'd focused on his breathing. In the second 50, it'd be his arms. In his third 50, it'd be his legs. In the last 50, it'd be finishing the race, You know, just keeping it really simple. So I don't think it was necessarily about me being you know a deep thinker it was just maybe a more general level of anxiety maybe or inexperience because even though I was an older swimmer I did genuinely lack experience I never I didn't have the years and years and years of racing. racing like most of the guys I competed against did have you know like they'd raced at age nationals for golds every year at you know state level, national level, all that sort of thing. It was
0: second nature to them by the time.
1: I think so. Yeah, for me, it wasn't second nature. And as, and as much racing as I tried to get under my belt in the years I was on the team, I wasn't an experienced racer, particularly in the individual events.
0: So your experience at the 2004 Olympic Trials for Athens, as we've talked about, was a real springboard to success for you. After that point, you were on pretty much every Australian team. You went to the 2005 World Championships where you won a bronze medal with the 4x100 relay and with the 4x200 relay. You went to the Commonwealth Games in 2006, which was in Melbourne. That would have been a terrific experience. Bronze and the 4x200 relay. I've got that on YouTube. I watched that last night. You swam a fantastic third leg. You were given the lead by... Who swam second? Kenrick Monk. Kenrick Monk, that's right. Kenrick Monk swam second. He gave you a fantastic lead, which yeah. you held on to. Yes. And by the time the fourth leg was finished, yeah. you were wearing a bronze medal
1: instead yeah. of a gold medal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was a. F- I actually have the rare accolade of being in the, the least successful men's swimming team at Commonwealth Games le- level. <laughs> we didn't win a gold medal until the last night. It was just one of those meets where we weren't performing as well as we should have. But back to that particular relay, Ian had qualified for the Commonwealth Games, but then three days before the Games started or something like that, he pulled out because he was, he was sick. But because he'd pulled out so close to the Games, they couldn't actually replace him with a 200-metre swimmer. So what that meant was that the, the our, our fourth swimmer was picked from the ranks of who was already on the team, and they picked, and Josh Crow was the swimmer who He's a um you know, really good mate of mine uh, on his day a re- you know really good 200 meter freestyler as well. He's a 200 meter butterflyer and a 200 meter freestyler, but and in fact you know he's not much slower than I was anyway. But he got fed to the wolves a bit in the la- being the last leg against you know the best of the other nations. And uh, Ian was you know four or five seconds faster than both of us. So it's just one of those things where we did the absolute best we could. Like you say, we were we we're in the lead for probably 750 metres of the 800 metres of the race. But then I think it was Simon Burnett who had, from England who had won the 200 individually, swam over the top of Josh, and we weren't far off. I think we got third by...
0: It was very close. Very
1: close. It was just one of those things, really close. And I was still still happy to, be, to get a medal, to be honest. So maybe maybe that thing you were telling me about, if, we, if I was silver, I'd be devastated, but it was bronze, so I was yeah. delighted. Delighted, you're yeah. right. <laughs>
0: So honestly, tell us honestly, when you think back to that race, and I imagine that that's a memory you have that's pretty clear. That was a big moment in your career. Are you just happy that you held on to that lead? And at least when you handed it over to the fourth leg, you were in the lead and whatever happened from there was largely out of your control? Or do you burn that you didn't win a gold medal?
1: Well, I don't burn that we didn't win a gold medal. I mean, I'm, I'm a Commonwealth Games medalist. No one can take that away from me. Real lives are a really funny thing. And I, know I love relays and I'd like to say that I, I always performed quite well in the relays. I may have from time to time not performed in an individual event internationally or domestically, but in a relay, I'd like to think that if, if you ask someone how I went in the relays, I always performed at my best and did a pretty good job. They are so different as well because you're all diving in at different times. It's, it's kind of got that team aspect. I think it's maybe the closest thing to being in the rugby locker room that I always wanted to be in, that I never got to be in. You know, before a race, you're not alone. It's not like you're a you know, you're not it's not like you're a boxer about to step out in the ring. There's the four of you guys. It's a real team team thing. There's a bit of strategy that goes on in terms of who gets picked where, who swims first, who swims second, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's not no, it's not there's not there's no individualism around, oh I'm happy with how I swam because that just doesn't really, you know, obviously if you just won poorly individually and affected the team, that would be something that would have burned on me. But I'd like to say that that's not something that had ever happened. But at the end of the day, it's the team result that matters. Absolutely. And
0: as you say, you are a Commonwealth Games medalist and no one can take that away from you. So you had a fantastic period between Athens and Beijing. You must have been pretty confident heading into the Beijing Olympic trials that you would find yourself on the plane to your first Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, I was. I mean, like you say, I was in. I'd been in every. I'd been selected in every team. I've, I felt like I was getting better every year. In two thousand and seven, we got silver in the four by two hundred meter freestyle relay in the World Championships in Melbourne. You know, that was after having only got bronze at Commonwealth Games. So we were we were on the up and up, and there was a really good group of guys who were all mates who would train together regularly and who were improving. Everyone was getting faster. I um. So yes, I was confident. I had a um, I had a couple of issues in 2007 where age had wearied me a little bit. I suppose you know I was certainly the oldest person out of that cohort of swimmers, apart from Grant. I started having some issues with some bulging discs and whatnot. Where for a long period of time there in 2000 at the end of 2007, I was my training was being affected a little bit with I was getting sciatica down my down my legs, so I had to pull so I, was, I had the bulging disc in my neck so I was always swimming with a with a snorkel there are a few things like that which were not helping but at the same time you know the, the swimmer's lot is to not get too negative with him with him or herself I was still pretty confident that I could get up on the day and then I hit a really good run of form between January and March which was where you have all your state championships leading into the nationals where we are racing against each other a lot and uh we were all swimming fast like Used to, not two years earlier, any swim sub one fifty was a good swim, and we were swimming 148s any day of the week, and that was a very large number of us. So we were the depth in the in the squad was was really quite cool. And on any given day, I might have been the fastest of them, but on another day, I might have only been the sixth or seventh fastest of them. So I had that uh, realism that you know there's a possibility that I won't make it but I was also really confident that I would. By that time, I'd sort of fallen off the grid in terms of the 100 freestyle, though that event had sort of passed me by in terms of the development.
0: What was that? Was that an age thing, or was it because of the time you spent with the distance squad with Grant?
1: Yeah, probably a bit of both. I really liked the 200. I liked training for the 200. I liked how sort of mentally tough you had to be every day in the training. But what that also meant was that I didn't train like a sprinter. I didn't focus on recovery I lost speed. I didn't improve over 50 metres in almost my entire swimming career. I just didn't because I was so focused on the 200. At the same time, Eamon Sullivan really led the team and took the calibre of sprinting to a whole new level. And you know, the time that was good in 2004 was pedestrian by 2008 and I hadn't really improved much in the 100. So that was something that I just, you know, you just have to roll with it. So
0: you went into those trials knowing that your, your big chance to go to the games was in the 200. Yeah,
1: the one. Yeah, I really only had the one chance that year, in, in my mind anyway. I did end up swimming okay in the 100, as it turns out, but I, I still missed out.
0: So you, in the 2004 games, you had an awful time trying to get some sleep between heats and semis and semis and finals. How hmm. did you go four years later with a bit more experience under your belt?
1: Oh, much better. The sleeping wasn't really a factor by then. You know, as, as you mentioned earlier, there was also the... There was during a period where the doctors would give you sleeping tablets, which um, has been heavily criticised. But to be totally honest about that, it prolonged my swimming career because it helped me sleep. So I was a textbook case for the prescription. I think so. So this,
0: this, the team doctor would give you a sleeping tablet if you talked about having difficult sleeping. Oh, at Oh,
1: absolutely! At that time, yeah, really.
0: And it didn't. I mean, it, it probably seemed like quite a smart thing to do.
1: Well, I still think it's a smart thing to do. I think people have overreacted. About Where did it. the
0: controversy come from then?
1: There were examples of people being silly, taking them when they didn't really need to. and Drinking Red Bull and yeah, staying up d- late. Yeah, all that sort of rubbish. Yep. But, but for the vast majority of people who used it, it was just a
0: tool to get over the oh, totally.
1: challenges of a meet. Oh, totally. Yeah, it was, you know, you're swimming a race at 10 p.m. You've got on that real adrenaline high. You go back to the hotel, you've got dinner. You might not be in bed till midnight or 1 a.m. And then you've got to get up again at 8 you got to get to sleep as quickly as you can. So I, you know, I look back at that and I'm thankful that there were sleeping tablets to tell you the <laughs> truth.
0: <laughs> so tell us about that meet, how did things play out for you and, and, uh, and how did you, how did you swim in the final?
1: Yeah. So things went, you know, things were going pretty well. I mean, I think I'd um, tapered well. I'd trained a lot of good form going into the meet. So had a lot of other people. In the heats I swam, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in that position where I, could swim a little bit within myself, and I went. Well, I think I was in the first seeded heat. They sort of seed the heats so that the last three heats were all the ranked people are. And I swam a fairly comfortable swim, but then I was only like thirteenth or fourteenth qualifier for the semis. Everyone else had swum really fast in the heats, so it gave me probably a mild fright of how fast everyone was swimming. But I, you know, by then I was a f- relatively experienced racer. You know, I'd been racing in- internationally and domestically for four years. So, like, like it is at any. Meet where there's a semi final, you don't even get a final if you don't perform in the semi final. And it was a really competitive event. So I stepped up and did a big PB in the semi finals. I think it was about a half a second PB in the semis. But I was one of a very large number of people that did a massive PB in the semis. So then I qualified, I think it was fifth for the final. And then, for, so the next night going into the final, I was nervous like anyone else. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say I was more nervous than anyone else. I don't, I don't. I look back at that and I think I can genuinely say that as compared to maybe some previous experiences where I kind of fluffed the race by being too nervous. But I do remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to be a pussy. I'm going to attack this race again because it was one of those races where, like I said to you previously, there are all sorts of different swimmers that swim the 200. And in this case, there were a lot of back-end swimmers, like the 400 metre swimmers who were in that race. And I, you know, I'd said to myself that I'm, no matter what happens, I'm going to give it a crack. And throughout that race, I was, right up, I was a front runner for the whole, you know, close to the whole race. There was another bloke out in lane eight called Grant Britz, who was very similar to me in the sense that he was a bit of a front end. You know, he was more of a sprinter. He and I were going out really fast and were right up near the front, right towards the end. He faded from first to sixth. I faded from second or third to eighth. And it was a blanket finish. I think there was less than a second between first and eighth. And unfortunately, it was just another example of that sort of 50% of times where I didn't quite hang on.
0: If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll
1: get things moving.
0: You had improved your time since the Athens trials by over a second and a half, but of course so had the rest of the field. That's right. At the Athens trials, you came seventh Mm. and they took the top six to the Olympics. At the Beijing trials, you came eighth and they took the top seven to the Olympics. Now there's a big story to tell as to what happened after the Olympic Games, but how quickly after the Games and the, the announcement of the team did you start to feel as though the wrong thing had been done by you?
1: Well, I think the starting point there is that I was bitterly disappointed about how I'd swum and I was accepting of it. I've always been, I've always tried my best to be a good sport about things like that. You know, I was, always really looked up to, say, you know, Greg Norman and how he handled himself in-
0: In all of those times? In
1: all of those times, I was trying to think of one. I think it was 96 was <laughs> 96 the big Masters. one. Masters. So, you know, I, that was on night three of an eight day swim meet so inside the front up. On pool deck for the next five nights, five days and nights. And at Olympic trials, you'll you'll always see people who mope around because they haven't swum the way that they wanted to swim. And I was doing my absolute best to not do that and to um, stay positive and you know just cop it on the chin. But at the same time, I did know that they'd changed the criteria that year. It had always previously been top six gets in and that's it. But this year, because there was a, some weird stuff going on with the Olympic Games and, and the NBC coverage. And because NBC was such a big funder of the Games, they wanted the heats to be at night in Beijing and the finals to be in the morning because of Phelps, because of all the attention on Phelps. And so there was a bit of media brouhaha about how Swimming Australia would deal with that. And the one thing that they said they would do is we we probably need bigger relay squads so that we can... Deal with the unexpected of being in Beijing, which is you know a Western, you know, sorry, an Eastern country, a bit unfamiliar. Swimming heats and finals in the reverse way around is a bit unfamiliar as well. So they changed the criteria on the relays to being able to take eight swimmers in each relay event, provided they'd done. I think it was provided they'd done an Olympic A or an Olympic B qualifier or something, but it was a discretionary selection for the selectors.
0: So you had swum an A qualifying time and you yep. come eighth. There was another situation with another swimmer, Felicity Galvez, who had swum a B qualifying time, but they chose to take her in similar situations to you. So they chose not to take you, but they they chose to take Felicity Galvez. Was decisions like that, inconsistencies with those kind of selection decisions, was that what made you decide to challenge your non-selection in court?
1: Well, there's probably a few things that led into it. Towards the end of the meet... There was a little bit of chatter about how they were going to take eight in every event. So your hopes were up? Yeah. It got to the point where I, was, I went from being very disappointed to thinking, oh, I might get picked here after all. In fact, one of the team managers, towards the end of a meet, what happens is a team manager normally goes around and gets you to fill out forms if you've made the team, gets you to fill out some forms and some declarations and all that sort of thing. And on sort of day seven or day six, I got asked to fill out the forms.
0: I thought I'm in here.
1: And, you know, you don't get asked to fill out the forms if you're not in the team. So I thought, oh, wow, this is great. And I I remember even saying, oh, have I been picked? And he goes, well, you've been asked to fill out the forms, aren't you? So, you know, I went from thinking I haven't been picked to I've probably been picked. And that then sort of nosedived spectacularly on night eight when they announced the team and I wasn't in it. So, you know, that was, you know, the way the process was handled, I wasn't happy about. And at that time... You know, I knew that was probably my last, you know, was my last shot. I was 26 turning 27. I'd been admitted as a solicitor. I was working as a solicitor. I wasn't going to keep going until I was 31. And I just felt that the process, one, it hadn't been handled very well. And secondly, I felt it hadn't been applied consistently. So I felt it was the right thing to do to call them out on that.
0: So there's two elements to this as I see it. There's the process piece as you talk about what their rules are and and how they were applied, but there's also this dangling of hope that's in front of you as well. Little things that are really significant, like giving you a form to fill out when it's part of the culture of the team that you don't get the form unless you're going on the team. For them to get you to fill that form out and then your name not to be read out on the last day of the meet when they call out the team that must have been really disappointing. So, now eight years down the track, when you think about those two separate pieces, the, the legal process, which you're all over because you're a lawyer, compared with that emotional toying yeah. of the significant things like filling out the form, which was the most significant factor that led you to challenge it in court?
1: Well, it was probably the first thing in the, the form which, which entered into my mind that, you know, we've sweat blood here for a long period of time to try and make this team I don't think it was malicious or anything by the way I just think it was just not something that they thought about and but I I thought it was was unfair in in a sense that it sort of robbed me of the dignity of just missing the team out outright and being able to cop it on the chin instead I'd spent a few days thinking I might have been on it and I was under no illusions whatsoever about the fact that I'd swum slower than I'd wanted to and you know fair and square I'd finished eighth in an event so in any other Olympic games there's no way I would have been picked but I found it harder to cop over the coming days when they did have the eighth fastest swimmers in every relay event apart from me.
0: That must make it really tough to have missed out. So they they took the option of taking eight in every case except in your case. That's right. And you made a phone call to head coach Alan Thompson and he seemed to think that he had actually picked you.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I, I had a good relationship with the head coach. He'd been a, big supporter of mine in fact in the previous years there are two things he'd done in the previous you know the previous year of world championships where he'd let me go back to Brisbane firstly for to get admitted as a solicitor and also to attend my grandfather's funeral this is during the world championships so you know Alan and I got along quite well so I called him and I um I firstly was ringing to just say look I'm really disappointed by the way things were handled I know I didn't swim as well as I should have but You know, I I think you owe it to the swimmers that if you're not going to pick them, tell them and certainly don't get them to fill out a form, which makes them think they might get picked. And then I also said, well, I I also don't think it's right that you've picked eight in every relay event except mine. And his response was, well, we did pick eight. Grant didn't swim the final. And the history of that is that often someone like a Grant Hackett might not swim the 200 metre free final at trials. He would just post the time in the semifinal and then pull out because of his other events. But in this case, he had swum the final. So I was eighth. So I said, no, that's not right. I was eighth. Including Grant? Including Grant. And that conversation effectively ended there, I suppose. Um,
0: What was his response? Did you sort of get the sense that you'd caught him out on the other end of the phone and he didn't didn't have his hand around that and he'd made a mistake?
1: Well, I can't. I honestly can't work out whether he just misspoke at the time or not. I, I just can't. But what ended up happening was that I took, Swimming Australia to the judiciary, which is the first thing you meant to do. And I, I swore that that was what we discussed. And I, and I said, you know, I don't mean any criticism of the head coach, but, you know, obviously an honest mistake's been made and I just want the situation rectified. And um, the answer, the defence I got to that was denying that the conversation had taken place. And words to the effect that that's an inaccurate recollection of the conversation. I would not discuss selections with a swimmer, particularly one that had missed selection. And that was, you know, obviously pretty gutting, particularly when the AOC policies say you have to tell a swimmer why they haven't been picked. (laughs) So that kind of steeled my resolve a bit, I think, to kind of follow through with it. I guess it was a, I'd missed, so the judiciary knocked me over. They, they, my, my appeal to the judiciary was unsuccessful. It's always very difficult to challenge a discretionary selection. That's just the way it is in sport. And it's almost impossible, in fact. But I felt that there was some avenue there on the basis that there having been a mistake being made and an admission of that mistake, although that was later reneged upon that it had been made. So he denied he'd said that? He denied he'd said it, yeah. So anyway, I'd kind of come to terms with that and I, well, not come to terms with it, but I was disappointed and I thought, oh, well, I better move on. And then um, out of nowhere, I got a call from Duncan Armstrong, <laughs> who uh, I know or you know, knew fairly well through, through the swimming circles as a tight-knit community. And he said, mate, you shouldn't just put your hands up, put up the white flag yet. You should go on with so this. So he encouraged you to take it further? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, right. he encouraged me to take it further. And there were a number of people encouraging me to take it further. I think to an extent, because I was about to retire, I was a lawyer, I had a history of standing up for myself and others through the Swimmers Association and all that sort of thing that you know, maybe I was in the wrong place, but the right place at the, at the right time, if you know what I mean, to actually take this on and call it out. You know, whether I win or not, so that they maybe handle things a bit more cautiously next time. So, Duncan encouraged me to handle it, but not only did he encourage me to, he put me in touch with um, a couple of sports law specialists who were going to look after me pro bono. One of them was a solicitor called Dale Cliff, who uh, is a partner of one of the city law firms to this day, and the other one was a barrister called Mark Martin, who uh, is a Silk now and was a senior junior barrister at the time. So, those guys handled my. Court of Arbitration for Sport Hearing, and uh, that sort of played out over a series of weeks, probably four to six weeks it played out. Us, you know, Swimming Australia had a barrister, had a silk, sorry, you know, they they would have spent a fortune in legals. Yeah, it, got, it all got a little bit ugly, probably a bit uglier than I wanted it to, but I felt it was the right thing to do, to sort of call on the behaviour and the inconsistency of it.
0: Why do you think Swimming Australia didn't just stop it all there, before it went to the court of arbitration, before everyone was investing in expensive lawyers, before Mm. it hit the papers, why didn't they just change their position and take you? There was plenty of information to suggest it would have been reasonable to do so. They'd taken other swimmers from other events in exactly the same position. In fact, as I mentioned before, they'd taken Felicity Galvez, Mm. who was in a similar position, but had only swum a B qualifying time, whereas you'd swum an A qualifying time, what was stopping them from just putting an extra bum on the seat of a
1: plane? Well, I guess that was my point. <laughs> right. I mean, I you know, you mentioned Felicity. She she's a friend of mine and I was imploring them not to take anything I was doing as a criticism of them selecting her. Well, it was the in, opposite, wasn't it? It was, was the opposite. You were saying, I yeah. want to be like her. Yeah, I was saying oh, I completely support that you've selected her. Just Select pick me, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think, you know, I learned a few, a few lessons in that experience myself and something that I I see every day in in my profession now, working in building and construction disputes as a lawyer, is that it takes a lot for someone to admit, admit they've made a mistake. I think I genuinely thought, thought what ha- think what happened there. My genuine opinion is that the cost of having egg on the face was higher. Than all of the than, other costs. Than all of the other costs.
0: Including the cost to you.
1: Yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. That's that, that's what I think happened.
0: That's really tough to take. And, and from everything that you know about Alan Thompson, is that consistent with his personality that although he knew you and he cared about you previous to this, that his attitude to life and, and his ego, if you will, would have stopped him from just making the call because he would have been wrong?
1: Well, I probably can't even... Target Allen specifically. I think you know Swimming Australia in general closed ranks around him. So I, I really don't know whether you know. I'd be it'd be pure speculation of me to to comment on what he wanted to do about the situation. I mean, like I said, I'd I'd always had a good relationship with him, and to an extent, I'd like to think that in any other situation, people may have admitted that the true state of events. I just I just don't know. But what I do know is that most people. When they're threatened, or when they're they're got the risk of having egg on their face, they'll do anything they can to save face, and I see it every day in in what I do today, where people will go to enormous expense to save face. Go to enormous expense to save face. Yeah.
0: During that period, was there any backlash on you? Was was there any view from your fellow swimmers or others in the swimming community that this was an A swimmer with his last chance to go to the Olympics who hadn't performed how he'd want at the Olympic trials, just being desperate and doing everything he could to get himself on the team.
1: A a lawyer at that. I don't remember getting much negative feedback from the swimming community as in the swimmers themselves. I think, well, I remember many of them being very, very supportive of me directly, although they didn't necessarily publicly support me for reasons I could understand. Certainly for a while there, it gave me a reputation that didn't quite reflect my personality. (laughs) The Swimming Australia for a while there, I I have on good authority that they thought I was you know, being a troublemaker and all that sort of thing, which is just not my style. So yeah, for a little while there, it did create a situation where I, I, I did feel a few fingers being pointed at me as being some kind of sore loser. And that was probably the most disappointing thing about the whole experience. I could cop failure. I'd failed plenty of times in my swimming career and... And elsewhere, but it was the way it was the way it was handled. I felt like I was completely within my rights to question how it was handled, and it would have been much easier for me to have in the week of the trials go, "Yep, I just didn't swim fast enough, and that's it for me. instead, I had this protracted six week long process of of going through the angst of it all.
0: would have been a really difficult time for you emotionally, but on a physical level, you were appealing the right to be on the Olympic team, which meant that you had to be prepared for winning. So you had to head along to training for that six to eight week period where all of this was going on in court because you had to be in a position physically that if they did turn their decision around, you had to be able to prove yourself right once you got to the games. How difficult was it to turn up to training nine, 10, 11 times a week and put yourself through the kind of physical torture that you do, knowing that there was a better than even chance that you wouldn't go?
1: That was really difficult. That was probably one of the most difficult things about it. And um, I should have mentioned earlier, by that time, I'd been back training with Rick Bandazan at Yoronga for about two years. And it was, it was an awesome period in my life, and I really enjoyed being back there. And I think Rick was feeling it as well. He was really upset at how, about how the whole process had been played out. And I was trying to turn up and put my game face on and train properly. But I, re- I, I did know that I was going to struggle to actually succeed in my appeal. And even though we handled it really well, the appeal. I still remember. Um, you know, we went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and it went for you know a few hours, and it went quite well. And Mark Martin, who's the barrister, um, Marto. He's a he's a bit of a larrikin. As we're walking out, he says, Amuso, hey, that went that went really well. That went really well. There's probably one thing we could have done differently." And I go, "Oh, oh, what's that, Marto?" And he goes you could have just swum a bit fucking quicker. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. You know, I just didn't swim fast enough on the day. And, and, I, and I've come to terms with that. And I don't regret having challenged them. I feel like it. I was the right person in the right place to do that.
0: Well, that was obviously my next question. Now, eight years later, how, how are you feeling about it? And I think you've answered it. But number one, you wish you had to just swum a bit faster. Number two, you're, you're glad you challenged it not because you won but because it shone the spotlight on their process and i guess it made swimming australia need to be a little bit more accountable in the way that they make selections is that fair to say is that a summary of how you view it now
1: yeah that's a good summary of how how i view it now and i you know i i then went on to become president of the swimmers association for a couple of years after that and you know for all intents and purposes my relationships are completely healed there with swimming australia i am you know, I'm still disappointed about what happened, but you know what's done is done, and it's a long time ago now.
0: <laughs> what was the experience for you like watching the Beijing Olympic Games? I didn't watch it. Didn't watch it. Just pretended it wasn't happening.
1: No, me, me and my brother Stephen, and uh, a mate of mine, Adam Lucas, who had missed the games as well narrowly, we decided to go on a trip to Europe and just oh, really? sort of, yeah, boycott. Just just a bit of a holiday. Yeah, just to kind of put it out of our minds a bit. Because obviously it was, you know, it was a bit raw. And so I wasn't terribly interested in seeing what I'd missed out on. I wasn't being bitter and twisted about it, but it just wasn't sort of on my radar at the time.
0: And how quickly after that experience did you retire from swimming?
1: Well, for a little bit there, I I thought, well, I don't really want to go out this way as having challenged Swimming Australia and all that sort of thing. And so for about another six months, I was Fluffing around a little bit, and
0: you know, in your just, mind, what were you eyeing the twenty ten Commonwealth Games?
1: Probably the you know, two thousand and nine Worlds. Maybe it didn't take it. It wasn't serious though. You know, I got to the point there where I realised not far into it that you know I've been to World Championships, I've been to Commonwealth Games, I've done all that sort of thing. I'd done what I could do. I felt fairly comfortable with what I'd done. I wasn't going to keep swimming till I was thirty one. I wanted to get on with my career. So. I guess I never officially retired, I, I must say, because I, I then started doing surf life saving and competing in the surf and doing all those sorts of things. So I, didn't, I never completely left swimming. I would still train occasionally. I still love swimming. I still swim a lot. So, you know, in reality, as soon as the case uh, sort of appeal was dismissed, that was it for me.
0: So you retired, you became a lawyer, you had a lot of really cool jobs for an ex-sportsman who <laughs> was also a lawyer at the same time. I don't think it was your first job after swimming, but you spent a bit of time working for a sports management company. Was that a really nice combination of your previous life as a full-time swimmer and your new life as a lawyer? Was that a nice segue?
1: Well, I actually was working there while I was swimming for a long time. It straddled it. it. So after I got admitted as a solicitor in early 2007, I left McInnes Wilson Lawyers, which was the firm I was at, and went to work part-time as in-house lawyer at International Quarterback which is um, the sports management company run by Chris White, who's you know, one of the most reputable sports managers in the in the nation. So I was working for him for probably 18 months or two years. And at that time, I was part-time for a while while I was swimming. And then after that, I was working full-time. So it was, you know, it was an interesting experience. I think ultimately, I wasn't particularly interested in working in sport full stop, having been so close to sport. A lot of people find the idea of working in sport a really sexy thing. But for me, I just, you know, in in no disrespect to the people who work in sport, I just wanted to find a different challenge altogether.
0: And now, of course, you have your own little legal practice, brand new. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So Michael Batch and I, who have been friends and work colleagues for a long time, set up our own law firm, Batch Mewing Lawyers. We started in March this year. So we're a specialist construction law practice. Brand new. Brand new. Yeah. Startup. Yeah. Just a new challenge to have. (laughs) And how's it going? Yeah, really well, thank you. We feel like we've tapped into a really exciting space in the market where, with all the disruption about and the uncertainty in the economy and the challenges in the construction industry generally, there's a really good place for a boutique firm that can be quite nimble about the way they do things. We bring the experience of having been working in larger firms and having worked in house at quite large construction companies. Yeah, our clients are giving us really positive feedback about the way we're doing things.
0: Fantastic. And was it always part of the plan to have your own law firm, or is this something that has just evolved over time to the point where, and you and I have spoken about it off record, where it just feels like the right thing to be doing? Always the plan or fall into it?
1: Fall into it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just just evolved. I mean, I um the firm I'd been at most recently before starting at my own firm is McInnes Wilson Lawyers, which is the same firm I was at when I was an article clerk. And I still have really strong relationships with everyone there. And I'll never forget that they supported me while I was in my swimming career. So it was a difficult decision to leave that firm. But it got to the point where it felt like a, a an itch that both Michael and I needed to scratch to run our own show and do things the way we want to do them.
0: All right. I've got three really quick questions to finish up with. Now, these might be different to the ones you've heard on my podcast before. I've changed them in the last few interviews. <laughs> okay. Of all the things you have achieved in your career, whether it's swimming or your legal career, what's the one thing, the single thing that you are most proud of?
1: Probably just to be blessed by such an amazing family. I both, my, my wife Megan and my three beautiful kids and also my brothers, my parents and my, my broader family. It's, um, I, I think about that a lot. I'm really lucky.
0: What's one thing that you know that you wish everyone else knew?
1: That's a really good question. I'm really stumped to answer that one, but if I was going to try and distill it, it would be something to the effect of how unpredictable life is. So, you know, never underestimate the role of luck, but put yourself in the, in the best possible place to take your opportunities when they're there. Well, that's pretty good.
0: Someone who says they were stumped. All right, the very last question. In terms of personal or professional development, what's one thing that you're working on right now?
1: Well, one thing I'm, I'm, really, I'm really passionate about is taking my learnings from my swimming career and using them in business. And I, it's something I used to be quite skeptical about when I was younger. And I used to find it to, all to be a bit of a you know, tired and worn cliche. But I really believe in it now. And I think. More and more and more, I find myself tapping into my experience as a swimmer to help my team, my firm and my clients in trying to, I guess, lead them in goal setting, in staying relentlessly focused on what the goal is, you know, not who's right and who's wrong, but what is your goal and how are we going to get there? I think having been a swimmer and absorbed pressure in a massive way, not terribly well at times, but, you know absorbing pressure in a much stronger and sharp focus than a lot of people do in their lives has enabled me to be very good at absorbing other people's pressure and that's a really important trait for a lawyer in a in the industry i work in where helping people with serious problems on a day-to-day basis so i feel like i'm only just scratching the surface of that potential and it's something i'm really keen in developing over the coming years that's a great answer
0: Andrew Mewing, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And that was the Andrew Mewing story. And what a roller coaster ride it was! During our conversation, I made no secret of the fact that I admire everything about Andrew's career, all that he achieved and dealt with. But just as much, I admire the way he's been able to process it over time and the impressive way he was able to articulate it to take us back to those experiences and relive them with him. I thoroughly enjoyed my time talking with you, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us all. If you're looking for a little more information about these past two episodes, jump on the Team Guru website, that's teams with an S, dot guru. I've shared some more information about his life, his swimming, academic, and legal career, and of course, I've posted those pictures that we talked about through our conversation. If you've liked what you've heard of the Team Guru podcast, share it with your friends and check out some more of the episodes. Jump on iTunes, subscribe and give us a rating. It all helps spread the word and bring more listeners on board. You can also get in touch with me through Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or email me directly, david at teams.guru. I'll be back next week for the next installment on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.